And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. David Leonard is one of America's most incisive journalists. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011 for his commentary on economic issues. He now writes on all subjects on the New York Times editorial page and is the co-host of a new podcast, The Argument, with his columnist colleagues, Ross Dothat and Michelle Goldberg. David came by the Institute of Politics recently, and we sat down to talk about the arc of his career and the state of our country and American journalism. David Leonard, it's really good to see you, not just here, but uh, at the University of Chicago last night at the Institute of Politics. And I learned some things about you uh, during that colloquy uh, you had uh, last night. Uh, And one of them was about your grandfather. Uh, And uh, I had not heard that story before. Tell, Tell me that again. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm a longtime listener of the podcast, as, right. as callers Appreciate to talk that. radio say. Longtime listener, first time caller. We just had our 300th show, so there's actually, it actually, you you could be a longtime I, listener I am indeed. by now. Mm. Um, yeah, so uh, during our session last night, I talked about my, my dad's dad, whom I never met. Uh, his name was Rene Leonhardt. And in family lore, we always thought of him as a commercial photographer. He owned a tiny little photography business in, in Times Square in New York, took photos of babies for pamp for diapers ads and things like that. But like a lot of people, I went through my family's immigration records several years ago. And on the ship's manifest, as he's arriving in New York, escaping Nazi Germany, um, he's listed as a journalist. And I, I, I mean, it was this incredible feeling of, oh, my goodness, he did the same thing I did. And as I looked more into it, he was a photojournalist, a photographer. Yeah. Um, but of course, when he came to this country, he didn't. He had to make money, right? And so I assume that's why he started this commercial photography business. And I, as I've thought more about it, it's just given me this sense of tremendous gratitude, right? That he fled Nazi Germany, comes here, sets up a little business, meets my grandmother, who is an amazing woman who raised my dad alone after my grandfather died very young. Uh, and so he he essentially had to leave behind what he liked doing, being a journalist. And now I get to be a journalist working for a newspaper in the same square where he worked, Times Square. Yeah. Um, and it's, Boy, it'd be something to see the photos that he took in Germany. It would be. Um, he was in. So by then he had moved to Paris. He grew up in Berlin. By then he had grew, moved to Paris in the 30s. Um, and I've actually thought about trying to go and, and do some archival research. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I'd do it. but Yeah. I, I have a, a bit of the same feeling because my father was an immigrant from Eastern Europe and um, uh, fled the pogroms. And uh, we, I went back to Russia with uh, President Obama in 2009. And uh, July 6, 2009, I, I'll tell you in a second why the date is meaningful. We were standing in Red Square, and uh, you know how you've covered these things, but there was a delegation of dignitaries, yep. and they were playing our national anthem, uh, and I stood there with my hand over my, over my heart. It's always moving when you're when they're playing our national anthem on foreign soil, but in Red Square by the Kremlin in particular. And it it was the eve of what would have been uh, uh, my father's uh, 99th birthday. Oh, my God. And uh, I found there were tears rolling down my cheeks because I was thinking about the incredible ordeal they went through to get to this country because they believed so deeply that this was a place where they could, you know, worship freely and where... Uh, anything was possible. And here I was one generation later, later as senior advisor to the president of the United States, who, by the way, happened to be an African-American man. Uh, and uh, I thought in, in a strange way, I just felt like it validated, my standing there validated their faith yes. you know, in the country. Yes. So uh, my I, ver- I, I always stand with my hand over my heart when the national anthem is played because of that, you know? Yeah. I mean, my ver- my smaller version of that is uh, I was at the state dinner for Germany. Uh, I assume you were there as well in 2011 um, with, with Angela Merkel. And I had the same feeling of, my, my goodness, I'm going to meet 
the leader of Germany tonight uh, at the White House. Uh, and this is the country that sent my family fleeing uh, to this country. Uh, and and we may end up talking about this later, but I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that that same gratitude that you and I feel and that so many Americans feel, there's a flip side to that. And that if you don't feel like your family's making progress, despite yeah, working really hard. We're definitely going to talk about that. That leads to frustration. No, we're definitely going to talk about it. And I should point out that my father came here in 1922. In 1924, the Congress passed a very draconian immigration bill that set very low quotas for Jews, for example, from Europe. Uh, and that's one of the, you know, many could have been saved. But there there was that same sense of nativism that, that has reared its head from Gener- uh, from time to time in our history at particular periods, but we we should. This is all part of a uh, uh, of that discussion on this issue. I, I don't mean to be trading stories with you, but um, but what the hell is my podcast? Yeah, so, story trading is um, good. But you know, um, on that issue, I was so interested when you said that about Merkel because I I, uh, I also got to go with uh, the president and Elie Wiesel to Buchenwald. Uh, which was one of the great uh, honors and experiences, sobering as it was, uh, of my life. I can imagine. And uh, and Chancellor Merkel was going to meet us there. And uh, Rahm Emanuel was on the trip. He was chief of staff. And he said to, to Wiesel, uh, given what you experienced here, because that was where he uh, he was held, and his father died at Buchenwald. Uh, he said, given all that, you know, how how do you feel about standing next to Merkel? And he said, the, chil- the children of murderers are not murderers. Wow. Yeah. Which I thought was a really powerful, powerful statement. And it's, of course, why he was the moral authority uh, that he was. And if you think about which societies manage to overcome incredible trauma. It's ones in which the victims have some capacity for forgiveness, right? It can't just be forgiveness. There needs to be punishment as well. Um, But without that capacity of forgiveness, it's this terrible cycle of of war and retribution. It's also important to to fully reconcile the country to the, the horrors of what happened. You know, we just had Brian Stevenson here at the IOP and, uh, you know, he was he talked about the fact that uh, Germany reconciled itself to the Holocaust, and other societies have have uh, confronted fully the the history, the, the the terrible history of things that uh, that had gone wrong, that had you know imposed great suffering, and you know that we as a country really haven't fully embraced the legacy here of the enslavement of four million people, the extermination of millions of Native Americans, and so on. Uh, And it was so true. Yeah. It was so true. Anyway, we digress. Back to your story. (laughs) Um, So that was your your dad's father, and was your mom also an immigrant, uh, your grandmother also an immigrant? No, I'm a a mutt, so Uh my dad is a New York Jew, my mom uh, is a Philadelphia wasp, Uh, Uh her her parents, whom I was very close to, uh, they lived uh, long lives, they uh, were the classic sort of children of the Depression in Philadelphia, uh, and then went on to have, you know, very prosperous lives as as middle class and upper middle class Americans who got to ride that great up escalator, And, and I grew up in New York. Your uh, your dad was a teacher. Yeah, yeah. In in in, uh, in New York, you grew up in Manhattan. Uh, outside of it, uh, um, I, as a really little kid, I was born in Manhattan. Um, uh, I'm a third generation born in New York City, but then mostly grew up out in the suburbs. And yeah, my dad was a teacher uh, first as a public school teacher out in the suburbs. And um, actually, there was a uh, in the '80s we we had this thing that happened in which it was two bad things made a good thing, which is I was really struggling in the middle school where I went outside of New York City, a public school in a town called Hastings on Hudson. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And, you know, I was doing really silly stuff like pulling the projector out of the wall and being forced to stay after school and write, I will not do this again. I I saw this, that you had these issues when you were a kid. And it seems like, I mean, you seem like the guy who would like stay and help the 
teacher clean up the classroom after school. I mean, it just seems so incongruous that you were this rebellious youth. Yeah. I mean, it was really silly forms of rebellion, right? I mean, it was a friend of mine and I um, uh, hiding behind trees and taking slap shots with tennis balls at passing cars, which which is like a terrible thing to do, right? I mean, it's let me encourage the youth of America never to, to send any projectiles at passing cars. Yeah. But it was not, it was nothing, like I had an enormously happy childhood. It was nothing fundamentally wrong. I was a bored adolescent kid, right? And, um, and, I, and, uh, and my parents, to their enormous credit, realized that's what it was. I was not a truant. I was not like going down some terrible road. Uh, and so the school called them one day and they said, we're describing my sort of- Your mo- antics. My modest behavior problems, yes. my antics. And my dad said, my dad obviously was a teacher as well. He said to the teacher, do you think we're talking about normal adolescent stuff here? Or do you think we're talking about serious problems? And the teacher said, I think we're talking about serious problems. And my dad said, that's when I stopped listening to him. Um, And look, that's another, right, that's a form of privilege, right? Like my parents knew how to kind of move the system and they didn't um, start putting me on a lot of medications. You can imagine very easily African-American boys essentially with those same behaviors getting arrested. You know, I was the most hyperactive kid. I mean, really notorious in my public school, Uh, so much so that my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Langdale, called my mother and said, uh, you know, David has a lot of energy, and we're just going to let him pace in the back of the classroom when he's not when, when he's not at his ha- having to be at his desk doing work, just to expend some of that energy. And I, I had a lot of teachers who were very much part of the project of trying to corral yeah. me. But I know that I would have been, you know, the first kid. They would have medicated. Yes. Then, and I worry about that. I think that's just that's a little that's a a a, a, a casual way, you know, uh, of dealing with things that may may not be best dealt with that, that way. That's right. And so, two things. Clearly, there are some kids who benefit enormously from medication and need it. And also, just as clearly, we're we're massively over medicating our children. Yeah. So anyway, my dad got laid off from his job as public school teacher at the same time that I was having these problems. And my parents, my mom and dad, essentially turned these two bad things into a good thing, which is my dad got a job at a local private school. Private schools, as you probably know, pay substantially less than public schools. So they kind of had to figure out how to make the finances work. And they said to each other, well, we, we don't exactly know how to make the finances work, but it solves this other problem, which is we can take our wayward son. I, I wasn't that wayward, but basically we can transfer him to this private school. And so I went to a private school in New York called Horace Mann, yes. where my dad taught. Yeah. Um, and it was it's a complicated place, uh, but um, it was the best four It was four complicated years. to be in the school where your dad taught? It was. That's one one. That's one check on your behavior. Yes, uh, it was. And knocking on the on your father's classroom door, saying, "Hey, you know, come on over here," because your kid is really being a pain in the ass. Yeah, uh, it was. So it was complicated for a few reasons. One, I was sort of an insecure thirteen-year-old, right? Who uh, and being around your parents at that time right, is not easiest. good. Um, uh, to uh, Horace Mann's a school with a lot of really affluent kids. Yeah. And I, uh, I was not impoverished at all, right? I was a middle-class kid, but. But I was marked as not one of them because I was the son of a teacher, and people knew teachers didn't make a lot of money. And actually, it informs those experiences inform some of the work I've done um, advocating for more economic diversity at colleges. Because I remember the experience of being we had this little card. Um, to get discount lunches as financial aid kids. I still remember the colors of the cards. They were these pastels for each month. And I remember the amount. We would get a $2.35 discount each day. And I would sneak into the cafeteria before most kids were there or after most kids were there so they didn't see me using this little kind of mark of of financial aid. Um, For the most part, it was a fantastic experience. the, uh, The quality of the education there was phenomenal. I'm still close to some of my teachers. And um, by the time I kind of outgrew my adolescent insecurity, it was it was hugely fun to be at school with my dad. I mean, when I was 13, I wouldn't go do it. But when I was 16 and 17, I had a free period. Wow. I'd go hang out with my dad. Um, I know I know a lot of 16 and 17-year-olds who would not react that way. It's probably a testament to my dad more than me. Yeah. I'm, I'm asking you this. This is a complete shot in the dark, but is that where... David Brooks went as well? No. 
Um, a lot of uh, a lot of David, because he, you know, he he and I sort of lived parallel lives. But he, I think, lived in Stuyvesant Town, where I grew up for a short time, and then, uh, but then he went to private school and not the. David's and my offices are next to each other, uh, but I think he grew up in in New Jersey or Long Island. He did not he did not go to school in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Horace Mann has lots of, of of writers over the years who have gone there. Anthony yeah. Lewis, my predecessor on yeah. the op-ed page, uh, went there. Lots of other people, but not David. David came out here to the University of Chicago, actually for college, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, the uh, uh, th- Part of the history of your parents are what they were activists. Yes. They were anti-war activists. They were civil rights activists. So much so that they there was a period where they picked the family up and went to Boston to, uh, to because Boston was the ground zero for the anti-busing movement, and there was quite a bit of stress there. Well, tell me about that. Yeah. So my parents met, uh, they were both involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement. Uh, and actually, uh, they met in 1967, because a friend of my dad, my dad said to a friend of his, we got to find someplace to watch the World Series. This was before everyone had TVs. And my dad's friend said to him, well, you know, I know a woman who has a TV, we can pretend we're just stopping by to say hi, and watch game one of the World Series, which was Red Sox Cardinals. Right, yeah, famous uh, World Series. Great World Series. Of course, the Red Sox lost, as they always did, and until the last 15 years. Uh, and then that woman had a friend over who was my mom. Uh, and so, to some extent, uh, I owe the Red Sox thanks for my existence. And you became a Red Sox I fan. Did. This is this is where I was going. This is I don't I can't describe how peculiar it is that a guy who grew up in New York. I know is a Red Sox fan. And it wasn't just peculiar, it was miserable, right? Growing up as a Red Sox fan in New York through the 80s when they lost that horrible World Series to the Mets, um, uh, even all the way up to 2003 with the Aaron Boone home run. But so, yes, as you said, we lived in New York, and then um, my dad really remained uh, quite active in um, these kind of leftist movements even after the Vietnam War. And so we went up to Boston to be part of the movement, basically protecting the anti-racist movement to protect the African-American kids who were getting bused to white communities, which was enormously controversial, right? And, 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 and not conducted that well by the government, right? It's a hugely complicated issue. So we moved up to Boston in 75 um, and lived there for six years. But that was from when I was two to when I was eight. And uh, that's sort of where I fell in love Formative, with baseball. Yeah, yeah so you, 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 um, th- there's a, a, a confluence here between your love of baseball and the fact that you became a math major. Yes, so I basically, so those years in Boston, uh, loved baseball. My favorite thing every morning was to get the Boston Globe sports page and and open it to that page known as yeah, the scoreboard. Yeah, we all did that. Right? Yeah. Actually, it's funny. Even with the rise of digital media, which I'm a big advocate for, I still don't think digital media has replaced that no. one-page summary of box scores. No. Um, which is just And fantastic. the papers that do exist don't really devote the space to the box scores that they used to because you can get them online. Yeah. Actually, I feel to to praise a rival, I feel very fortunate to live in Washington where the Washington Post sports section is still really, the print sports section is still really excellent. So I I just, I I don't even entirely know why, but um, I like numbers from the very beginning. To me, it was this language that described the world, which at first was just sports because that's all I cared about. And then then I had this great second grade teacher, Mrs. Sandler, uh, who really- We all can name them, can't we? We can name them, right? It's a reminder of its work that really matters, right? Really matters. Totally. Um, I think the most undervalued people in our society, honestly, are teachers because we- hand them our children and we say help them become what they can become you know obviously parents have a big role and uh, man that's a especially in this day and age we'll talk about that later in terms of the economy but it's it's it really the fate of of your children to some degree is in the hands of these teachers and um I don't think we value them enough. I agree. Um, the flip side of it, I mean, we need to value them more, right? There's no doubt about that. I think the the flip side, we're surrounded here by young people, right, trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And the thing that I would remind young people is, it is work that has enormous meaning and in that way value. My Yeah, there's no doubt. Well, your father's an example of that. He is. Uh, and he died uh, almost three years ago now. Uh, and obviously he was in his seventies, so he was too young, um, 
but he was obviously a lot older than your dad was when you right, lost him, right. and, and his than my own dad's dad was. So uh, I recognize that in many ways I was extremely lucky. But around his death, one of the things that my mom and my sister and I heard a huge amount of was we heard from his former students. It still happens yeah. to me. I'll go give a talk yeah. somewhere, and someone will come up to me afterwards, and they'll say, your dad was my teacher. That's so meaningful. And it means so much to me, and it yeah. also just gives you a sense of of how important this work is. So Mrs. Sandler, my second grade teacher, I wrote my college essay about her. And she really, even as a second grader, I had this sense from her that we're not doing math as some little test or some game. Math is a language to describe the world. And I just have never lost um, my love for numbers. Yeah. It's a language to describe the world. I I, I must say I'm not bilingual, so I never got that language completely. But uh, you... Um, it's interesting to me that, in fact, you were obviously a good writer from from the beginning. Is that fair to say? Um, I that's probably not how I would say it. I but but I don't know. I remember this feeling of of in high school of being over this kind of early word processor. Right? It was a combination typewriter, and thinking to myself, I really like this. If only I weren't so bad at writing, I would want to be a writer. And I think to some extent for people who write, I'm sure there are exceptions, but it's hard even oh for gosh, those yeah. of us who, it's just so hard, it right? Is. The process of writing. And so I, I, I don't, I, I, to me, it's one of these things that you just keep practicing and practicing and practicing um, and you get better at it. Um, you know, uh, uh, President Obama, when I was about to write my memoir, he said, I just, here's my only advice to you. He said, you gotta be psychologically prepared because nine days out of 10, it's going to feel like you're pushing a boulder up the hill. And in the 10th day, you're going to feel like you got it licked. And then on the 11th day, the boulder is going to roll down. <laughs> and he said, and it's it's hard. And yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, writing, writing, I mean, it's a, the rare writer who will tell you, no, it all, you know, it, it just flows. It just comes yeah. easily to me. Yeah. Elie Wiesel actually told me, you know, he could work a whole... Uh, a whole morning on a paragraph. Really? And, yeah. And, you know, he's such a lovely, powerful writer. And I, that made me feel better, yeah. too. So glad to know that the masters also struggle. But um, but my point was going to be, it's kind of unusual for someone, I think, but maybe not, to be really great at math and also a good writer. It's like different parts. It feels like different parts of the brain. In a funny way... I feel like math was the thing that I, I found on my own, and writing was the thing that I inherited from my mom and my dad. Um, my mom was a copy editor for a while. Um, I, I was just recently going some, through some photos of my childhood. And if you look, you just see pictures of my mom sitting around reading a newspaper randomly, right? It's just <laughs> kind of what she did and, uh -huh. and read books. And so I, I just felt so surrounded by that 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 almost— the writing part and the reading part felt natural, and it is a craft, and you keep working at it. The thing that made me passionate about it was when I realized essentially how it can be a tool for engaging uh, with the world, right? Actually, last night, you, you, you told me that when you came to college here, that this place was very much focused, what was it, on the life of the mind? Yes, yeah. And you wanted to deal with the life of the world. The I life of the world. Yeah, so yeah. that's what drove me to journalism. Um, you know, I wanted to, that's how I connected with the world was by going out and covering local politics here. And that's, that which is, by the way, a world unto itself, but that's another. It is a world unto itself. Yeah. And that, and although my, the specific of my experience were different, actually, they were broadly similar, which is I began writing for my high school paper at Horace Mann, first sports, of course. And then I realized something. Oh my goodness, when we write something in the paper, the teachers and the administrators take it way more seriously than when we just tell them. So if we tell them a criticism, they'll nod politely and probably ignore it. If we write down a criticism, they'll get kind of angry about it, but they also won't ignore it. Right. And that's a pretty exciting feeling when you're 14 or 15 years old. That and, and, and so that experience, we complained about really silly stuff like the cancellation of the talent show. Yeah. And we actually complained <laughs> about real stuff, like about racism at the school. And um, I'm sure if I went back now and read the pieces, I'd be embarrassed by them. But um, it was a phenomenal experience. And so for me, writing was this way to engage with the world that actually seemed to have some amount of consequence. You um, you went to Yale. I went to Yale, uh, and you became involved in the Yale Daily News, a, a very celebrated student 
uh, newspaper. Um, one of the things, this is, uh, you, you told me once that uh, one of your uh, peers there was, uh, uh, was Theo Epstein, yeah. now famous as the architect of two historic World Series franchises, first the Red Sox, he, he saved you from your angst. He, he did. I will always be grateful. Yeah, as a, or a prodigy, really. And uh, and then he came to Chicago and he did the same thing for me, so uh, I'm grateful to him. But um, but he was a talented journalist. Yeah, he was. He was a hugely talented journalist. As you know, he has this great literary history, right? His, yes. His fa- his sister is a screenwriter. His father teaches. Well, his grandfather writing. and his grand a great uh, and his grandfather's brother uh, wrote the script for yeah. Casablanca. Yeah, just amazing. Yeah. So there was. Uh, there was one night uh, at our college newspaper where a group of us were sitting around as college students do, taking ourselves way too seriously. And we were th- we were trying to think about who is the best writer, just sort of prose stylist in each class. And I still remember this. In the class of 1993, we decided it was Ellen Barry, who's now a celebrated foreign correspondent and a colleague of mine. In the class of 1994, which is my year, we decided it was Matt Kaminsky, and that made us all mad because Matt's first language was Polish, not English, but he was still a better writer than any of us. He now is an executive of Politico. And in the class of 1995, it was the sports writer, Theo Epstein. Uh, And I still remember him writing these letters off to try to get an internship, I think, with the Baltimore Orioles. Which he did. That was the beginning of his career. He said he wrote every team in the country, but Calvin Hill, the old football player, from Yale was an executive at the Baltimore Orioles and saw this letter, which probably was better than the average solicitation for an internship and hired him. Yeah. I mean, now huge numbers of kids at colleges like Yale and Chicago want to go into sports, but a lot of them, Theo was sort of the trailblazer, right? And so people yeah, thought he said it was that kind when of I did odd. a podcast with him, he, yeah, I think people, he said people thought he was kind of nuts. Yeah. Because it's like you got this Yale degree, you should go, you know, Get into finance, go to law school, go to, and no, I'm I'm gonna go into baseball. And it worked both ways, right? People in the baseball world, I think, were pretty skeptical of pointy-headed Ivy League school kids. Yeah, he did impart one bit of advice that I share all the time with people, which is he said, "I figured out that if I that everybody has like twenty percent of the jo- their job that they don't like, and if I could take that off everyone's plate." And just do the twenty percent of the job that they didn't want me to do. That that I could learn the whole thing and be, you know, ingratiate myself and move up in the organization and so on. And of course, uh, of course, he did. You were an intern at the Washington Post. I was, and uh, and you were hopeful that it would lead to employment. Extremely hopeful. (laughs) Was this in your senior year? Yeah, so I did this sort of an... I actually don't know whether it still exists. It probably doesn't to the same extent. But but 25 years ago, there was kind of an internship circuit. I um, I, I taught junior high school math in New Haven and then went when when that workday was over at 3 o'clock and wrote stories for the New Haven Register to get clips uh, yeah. so I could then get another internship. Right. I'm sure you remember this whole I did the story. whole deal, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I had an internship at the Boston Globe uh, and then um, on the city desk of the Washington Post. And it was, it was really a phenomenal experience. I, I learned a huge amount. I got to cover the negotiations to build what is now the downtown sports arena where the Wizards and yeah. Capitals play. Revitalize that neighborhood. Yeah. And so it was just a great experience. Uh, and uh, the one part of the experience that wasn't good was I very much wanted to get hired there. And uh, and look, I think I was 22 and hadn't had a lot of experience with failure. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. How did you How did you deal with that? It was hard. I mean, it was, it was, so they were great. They, there was a whole class of interns. Yeah. And, um, and, and they hired the right intern. They hired the best intern that summer was a writer named Rajiv Chandrasekharan, who went on to a long career there. He was clearly the best of our internship class and they hired him. So there was no injustice here. Yeah. But it was, it was disappointing. And they said to me, look, apply, I forget the number, but they said something like apply to 20 papers. You'll get five job offers. You'll go off. And then in a couple of years, we'd love to look at you again. And I applied to 20 papers and I got no interviews. I mean, it was the mid 90s. Um, I'm sure some part, part of it was some weakness in my application. And some part of it was the secular trends in newspapers that jobs were less available. And, um, and it was, it was really quite, 
disappointing. Um, and there was this moment where I was, wait a second, my internship here is going to come to an end in a month and I don't know what I'm doing. And um, I ultimately got uh, a couple of offers, one at the Raleigh News and Observer in the Durham Bureau, which if I had gotten immediately, I would have taken in a second. But by then, I'd also applied to magazines in New York, and I'm a New Yorker, and I was 22, and I was choosing between New York and Durham, and I chose New York, and I went and worked for Business Week magazine, um, and had a great four years there. But it was, given that I write about the economy, uh, it was a useful experience to not simply have employment as a given, and to have to grapple with the idea of, hey, you know what, I don't necessarily know what I'm doing a month from now. You also didn't know in uh, when you were 22 that you were going to be writing about the economy. That's right. That's a good point. No, I, you're right. And so at the Washington Post, I was covering crime, um, which I essentially would encourage all young yeah, journalists right, to yeah. do, right? I mean, it's just an, the, the, the rawness of the human experience that you see covering our market. Best experience I ever had. Two yeah. and a half years on nights at the Chicago Tribune. Which is a much more intense version of it than I had. But, I, but you know, it's just, but, you know, this experience of you're calling one cop shop after another Absolutely. and saying anything going on. and I mean, in covering murder trials, which just watching the profound sadness that, that people have to grapple with. So, um, but... But in part because of my interest in math, and in part because in the 90s, business journalism was the growing field where you could get a job, um, I kind of ended up drifting that way. And you you did very, very well. You got you, you won awards for your reporting. You did some groundbreaking reporting on the, what was going on at McDonald's, one of the one of the uh, you know iconic franchises. Uh, and um, and that, ultimately led to the Times? Yeah, led to the Times. An, an old friend of mine uh, uh, from college named Seth Giselle um, had been hired by the Times. And uh, Glenn Cramon, the business editor, uh, as I've heard the story, said to him, you're great. Where can we find other young reporters? And Seth gave him a bunch of names, including mine. Uh, and there was sort of a long path between Business Week and the Times because the Times has to act a little bit like a magazine in its business coverage because of the existence of the Wall Street Journal. So I started at the Times in 1999. As a business writer? As a business writer. Um, I think I might hold the record for the section that I was hired to work for closed most quickly after <laughs> I started. So th this is almost impossible to, to think about today. The New York Times had too much classified advertising in 1999 for its Sunday classified ad section. So it had to start a spillover Wednesday classified ad section. And to make it, we're the New York Times, we don't just want to make it about ads, they splashed one 800-word story on the front of that section. And you were that guy. I was hired to write that story called Workplace and Management Stories. Yeah. So yeah, the that is done. that 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 uh, seems like a quaint memory now, that the, the, uh, the over supply of classified advertising, which papers don't really have anymore. No, right? we don't have it at all. Um, you also, uh, you, you, you had a uh, sports column, an analytical sports column called Keeping Score. And I just want to ask you about analytics yes. generally, because, you know, you would, you would come to um, pioneer uh, that as a project for the Times, a section for the Times uh, later, bringing analytics to bear on all of the, yes. um, uh, on all of the issues that uh, we face. But I just have to ask you this one issue, uh, this one question about analytics and sports, and as a baseball fan, um, every team, and Theo is the probably the leading proponent of the use of analytics to evaluate talent, to position players in the field, and so on. Um, I, and I sometimes I watch baseball, and you know the players are perfectly positioned because the analytics guys told them, "Well, here's where you play when this guy's up against this pitcher," and so on. And I, I wonder if it's good. It, may, it kind of makes the game a little less exciting, you know. So I I think baseball does have an excitement problem right now, but I actually put the blame in a slightly different place. To me, it's simply the fact that pitchers now throw so hard, and teams have realized that if they bring in one pitcher after another, um, uh, it, they can get many more strikeouts. And I, 
I mean, this is a matter of preference, right? I, I'm not going to try to persuade you to like the shift more than you do. But to me, the shift is kind of fun and interesting, and batters can always bunt to try to beat the shift. The it's kind of surprising, actually. There are always ways to beat the shift, but it speaks to the power of the analytics that these batters don't seem capable of doing it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I love it when I see uh, there have been, actually, Anthony Rizzo, Anthony Rizzo of the Cubs, I think there are some he, sluggers. He's, who, he's really good at that. He shortens up his stroke and he goes to the opposite field. And, yeah. and to me, the, so the shifts and the things like that on the analytics are part of the, the yin and yang of competition and yeah. strategy. I actually love it. I don't love... The fact that um, baseball is now about so much about strikeouts and home runs. Yeah. Um, and I actually think that the league needs to look, they've raised the mound before, they've done all kinds of things. I think to me it's time. The league is talking about banning the shift, which I don't think is a good idea. But I do hope they come up with some things to make the process of watching a game a little bit more dynamic. Yeah, you talked about 1967, when also there were great pitchers and the pitchers were dominating hitters, yeah. but you also saw. You know, a lot more action, you know, on the base paths yep. and uh, all of that. Anyway, you you went on to write the uh, a column, The Economic Scene, yep. and you got to that place at a propitious and tragic time for the country because a couple of years in, we were into the financial crisis. Yep. Um, tell me, I, I want to talk to you sp uh, specifically about the stuff that earned you the Pulitzer Prize, but because uh, I was there for, I was a witness to some of the stuff that you wrote about. But tell me what that crisis uh, did to our country and how much have we actually recovered from it? We have not recovered from the crisis. And I think that one of the mistakes that we make is looking at some metrics like GDP or the stock market which have recovered, and pretending that we've recovered from the crisis. But if you look at what to me are more meaningful measures, like um, Americans' net worth, like the percentage of, of people employed in good jobs, we have not recovered. And so the way I think about the crisis is we essentially, after World War II, we've had roughly, and this is overgeneralizing, but, it, but it's but there's a point here. We've had two economic periods. We had the period from right after the war until the mid-70s when we had not only rapid economic growth, but broadly shared prosperity. Right. Personal growth grew with uh, our, 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 as our economy grew in, in kind of unison. So yes. all ships actually did rise. And as hard as this is to believe, the middle class had got bigger pay increases than the wealthy in percentage terms, right? So inequality fell. And then since the 1970s, for a complicated mix of reasons, basically we've had slower growth and much more inequality. And so most people's living standards have risen, but only a bit, right? Only modestly, much more slowly than used to be the norm. And what the so I, let me just in, interrupt yeah. for one second to say you you, you, you mentioned there were a, a number of reasons for that. The uh, the demise of unions would be one. Definitely. The uh, the, the companies going public and the tyranny of the quarterly reports, I assume, would be one. Yes. Um, what what else? So I'd put on the list um, a power imbalance between companies and workers, which is the decline unions, of unions. Yeah. Um, I'd put on the list um, uh, globalization, yes. which opened up markets. And, and let's be clear, has huge benefits, right? The rise in living standards for Asia and Africa and Latin America is a good thing. It's just created yeah. some real problems for yeah, rich yeah. You, you go to Kiwani, Illinois or something and lecture them on the right. benefits and they would have a different view. Maybe. And they're right. I mean, right? I mean, we, we, they deserve to be able to think about their own lives, right? They deserve to have that kind of path that we were talking about at the beginning of feeling like their families are making progress. Um, and then I would also put on the list um, the real, the fact that our education system doesn't work as well as it used to. So uh, we used to be the most educated nation in the world, and we're not anymore. Um, we were the nation that pioneered mass high school education. Mm -hmm. We're not the nation leading the way. On STEM. On STEM, on 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 mass two-year or four-year college education. And so, um, so we haven't kept pace. And then I guess the final thing I'd put on the list is, um, the government essentially has stopped even trying to push back against a lot of this. Mm -hmm. We've massively cut tax rates. I mean, I know there have been ups and downs, right? right? When you were in the White House, you guys raised tax rates right. on the rich. But but the net effect has been um, to exacerbate these trends. And then the financial crisis comes along, 
And it takes these sort of long simmering trends and am I mixing metaphors here? Turbocharges them, right? I mean, it really, it, it just makes them much, much worse. And the history of financial crises are that they cast extremely long shadows, both politically yeah. and economically. And obviously, we're living with that right now. You wrote, this is what you wrote about in the column, I think, that, uh, or one of the columns that earned you the, the, the Pulitzer Prize. And the, the assertion was that um, the Obama crew of which I was one, um, did not treat did not treat uh, this as a long term proposition in a way that they should have. And you rightly reported that there was a lot of discussion internally about the impact of a financially induced economic crisis, and that the, that that is not the kind of usual V shaped recovery, but it takes much longer. We actually did talk about that. But the, uh, but the challenge was political. Yep. The challenge was, yes, we should have had a, a, a larger recovery act. We, we could barely pass the one we had, and there were artificial constructs that were placed on us by Congress, like you can't go over $800 billion, uh, you know, or we won't vote for it. And we, we, needed, we needed 60 votes to... Uh, Pass the thing. We wanted a, a large, um, ongoing commitment to infrastructure. Once the Republicans took over, that was when they were concerned about deficits and debt. They uh, they were unwilling to do that. Uh, so you know, I, I I'm not quibbling with you, but I, I we were not unaware of the challenge of this financially induced economic crisis and we knew that it was a long-term proposition yeah and i don't i i don't uh, question i don't think you guys could have gotten a larger stimulus you were there first of all right yeah. but i i really don't to me the mistake came and it was um actually even worse at the bernanke fed um but the mistake came not so much in 2009 but in in the kind of optimistic hope that in 2010 there were green shoots. And I thought parts of the government, parts of economic policy was a little bit too eager to to see those green shoots. Green shoots was an unfortunate phrase. It was an unfortunate phrase. Look, uh, the, I think in fairness, it's important to say the combination of the Bernanke Fed, um, the very end of the Bush administration, and most importantly, the Obama administration, I think... Uh, conducted what is arguably the most successful response of any major economy to a financial crisis. And as you right? pointed out in your writing, if you look at the rest of the world, uh, you know the U.S. stacked up well in terms of its response. If Europe had dealt with its banking issues in the way uh, the U.S. did, for example, they probably would have had better results. Yes. More quickly. Yes, and. To me, what's so striking is even even though in relative terms it was such a successful response, it still wasn't enough. Yeah, right. Without question. So this this is as you said exacerbated the trends that were already there toward economic polarization, stagnation among large numbers of Americans' incomes. Uh, how much do you think that has contributed to Trumpism? Um, and how much of Trumpism is is uh, animated by cultural differences? And particularly by race, right? And um, race, yeah. Uh, so I think the answer is clearly both. Uh, there's this quite—I uh, actually think it's important, too. There's this quite interesting debate, right? Is it economics or is it race? And to me, the answer is it's clearly both, right? The 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 Why is it that Trump's appeal to racism— um, seem to work so well. To me, in part, the answer is the kind of frustration that people are feeling about their living standards, right? Um, that frustration is real. And if you look at all of history, Andrew Churlin, who's a sociologist at Johns Hopkins, makes this case as well as anyone. Th these things have always interacted, right? This idea of native and racism, what sparks them? The most common spark for them is frustration in people's lives. And so I think this long-term stagnation that we have seen in living standards plays a huge role in Trumpism. Another way I would say— And not just, by the way, Trumpism, but you saw—you know, if you overlay the, the, the Brexit leave vote 
uh, with the Trump vote, there's a there's a very there's a very much uh, of an alignment between them, and in in, a, in much of Europe, you're seeing a lot of these trends, and, you know, and obviously migration has fueled uh, some of it as well. So economic and race and culture all kind of driving yeah. things as as they are here. I mean, another way I would think of it is you have a significant number of voters in this country who swung from voting for Barack Obama in 2012 to Donald Trump in 2016 to the Democrats in 2018, right? right. Um, you know, it's only a few percentage points, but it's but enough a to really, make a difference. Yeah. Enough to make a difference. And I guess I would say when you think about that pattern, it's really hard to argue that economic frustration doesn't play an enormous role in it. Um, I agree racism plays a role for some voters as well, but I just don't buy this notion that I know is popular on parts of the left of it's all racism and 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 only marginally economics. I think it's both. It does raise the question because the things that Trump has done have also exacerbated uh, these trend lines in terms of taxation in particular. Um and deregulation and so on, um, whether, you know, how, how the story evolves here and what are these alienated voters, do they become more alienated uh, over time? Uh, and what, what, is, what is the impact of that? I think the biggest worry is exactly that, right? Which is people are frustrated, they look out, they see government can't solve these problems and they essentially say, well, nothing can, right? Or only a strong man can. I, I think that's the yeah. big worry. I retain some optimism, though, because if you look at polling, if you look at the results of referendums in different states, there really is a majority of people in this country for an economic program that would address these issues. A majority of Americans want um, the federal government to play a bigger role providing affordable health care. They want a higher minimum wage. They want, um, you look at these sort of referendum results in red states on the minimum wage and Medicaid and all these other issues. Should tax rates on companies and rich people go up? There's huge majorities that say yes to these questions. And so I actually do think on economic matters, there is a progressive populist majority in this country. I think social and cultural issues, the country's closer to a half and half divide. But if politicians can figure out a way to tap into that. And I think actually the Democrats did a pretty good job of it in the midterms. Um, A lot of the House campaigns around the country, they weren't running around talking about impeachment or Donald Trump. They were talking about fighting on behalf of working families. Uh, I would hope that it would be possible to have a period again, like the 2009 and 2010 period that you were part of, in which you could really have a kind of activist government trying to make a difference in people's lives. You argued last night that Democrats should focus on those issues as they did in 2018, in 2020. And we spoke afterwards, and I told you that uh, I think the great challenge is going to be in a primary, in a large primary field, um, there's going to be a great temptation to, um, to, to, to stray from that focus uh, and focus more on you know, Trump focus on, uh, you know, some of the the, the more um, incendiary kinds of social issues and so on. I, there is, there will be. The, the thing that I would, I would try to, and, and we don't yet know who's going to emerge from this field, right? right? My hope would be someone emerges in a way that people just get excited about, right? I mean, people don't pick candidates kind of based on lining up white papers yeah, and policies, right? They, don't. right? they pick candidates if based on— If they did, candidates. Hillary Clinton would be president. Yes, she would be, because they agreed with her on the issues much more than Trump. And um, and so my hope is there's, there's a candidate who can really excite people and who, in the course of doing so— doesn't end up having to essentially have their image, their political image, be all about these social issues. Because, I mean, America's just not as progressive on immigration, on abortion, as the Democratic Party is, or as many people on the left, I think, sometimes would like the country to be. And you sort of can't wish for the electorate that isn't there. As we discussed, that was something that Obama was able to navigate. He was able to navigate it in part because he had been against the war and most of the other candidates had supported the war in Iraq. So that was a certification. But he's also, as an African-American, was able, you know, there were certain presumptions about him that 
gave him more leeway, uh, and he really emerged from the primaries in a, as a strong general election candidate uh, because he didn't get into niche issues uh, in the uh, primary that could be that could be damaging in a general election. You. Um, uh, you, you've played various roles at the Times. You ran the Washington Bureau uh, uh, for a while. Yep. You also got involved in a project to kind of rethink what the paper needed to be yep. to be uh, successful. Uh, just very briefly, tell me about that, because the Times is actually doing pretty well now. Donald Trump would claim full credit for yep. that, but I know that there are other things that you have done that have made the the, the paper more contemporary and accessible. Yeah, so I'm on I'm on the opinion side. I of I call time. it a paper. You I see, still I'm, like that I'm word. dating myself. I still like that word. Uh, and I actually, I, uh, look, I, I I'm a big advocate for digital media, but I think it's worth remembering. Paper is still a good technology in some ways, right? Like it's convenient. You don't have to wait for it. To I love move. reading the newspaper. Yeah. I think I always read it more thoroughly than I do digital. It's easier to do. Yes, I get teased by my young colleagues about it. Um, who think that I should be in the Field Museum. For you know, reading it. For reading it, yeah. Well, look, our attitude is as long as they're reading it, uh, in one form, we're happy. Right. Uh, so I've, I'm on the opinion side now, right? So I, I fulminate about various things. But I've spent most of my career at the Times on the news side. And um, back in 2015, Dean Baquet, who's the boss, the executive editor, asked— Old, old Chicago Tribune. Report. Old Chicago. He won a Pulitzer here in Chicago, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Um, uh, um, he likes to joke he won it for covering Chicago corruption, which is which is the easiest way to win it. Yeah, That's it's his like line. like shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. You know? um, he's being modest about that. But um, so he said to me, look, we've changed an enormous amount, but we haven't changed enough in terms of how we present information to people in terms of the shape of our staff. And because I was on the one hand, this sort of traditionalist who's I've now worked there almost 20 years. I ran the Washington Bureau. I'd come up through the business staff. But I had also started the Upshot, which was this digital yes, first. Yes, this is what I referred to earlier. Right. Um, uh, very heavy on visualization. We didn't have a, a large it's a great, presence. It's a great section. Thank you. Um, uh, it, it was. It's an enormously fun project and a great team of people. Um, uh, and so he asked me to be part of this group that would try to figure out where the Times is going. And, and we, what we basically, I mean, we made a whole series of recommendations. But one of them, in some ways, the main one was... The Times has large needs that it must hire for. Um, we need to hire more of these data visualization experts, people who make graphics. We need to ramp up our audio, which has now become a hugely yes. important part of the Times. Um, we need to to put people in new places where we don't now have reporters. And unfortunately, we can't grow our staff 50% right now. So we have to think about where plausibly we are investing too many resources. And this was not without controversy, as you can imagine. Right. But one of the things that Dean and we concluded was that we were over-editing some stories, that stories don't necessarily need uh, six edits before they go into the print paper. It's not that those edits weren't improving the stories, that they were. But if you have to decide between... So you let a bunch of copy editors go. I, I did not personally. No, the, you I know, know. Our, our, Right. But, but yeah, the paper has, um, for the most part, it's it's done it through buyouts. But the paper has essentially decided we need to grow in some areas and shrink in others. And clearly that is a painful process. Um, I guess to me it is better than the alternative of the New York Times seeding major areas of coverage or seeding audio um, to other places. It's it's deeply in line with the Times' history, which is the Times has changed, right? The reason the New York Times is the New York Times is because it's repeatedly changed over the years. You, uh, what, are the, what are the challenges for the, for the Times in covering this particular president? It's enormously difficult. I mean, as I mentioned, I'm not involved in that in that coverage right. now. But but you're um, a keen observer, and I, you 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 comment on him, obviously. Yes. But you're a keen observer of the coverage. Yeah. No, I, I'm happy to talk about. it. I just don't want to suggest that I'm in, no, no, in no, charge I'm of it or responsible. For it. My basic view of the media, and I think it's fair to put the times in this, is that the media has done a, an extraordinarily good job of covering Trump as president, and. Um, did not do so good a job covering the 2016 campaign. Mm -hmm. We didn't figure out how to deal with the fact that we had these two candidates, both of whom had flaws, but one of whose flaws were vastly larger than the other. We didn't really figure out how to deal with the emails. Wasn't part of the problem the the presumption that 
Hillary Clinton was going to win? Wasn't she treated differently because people saw her as as a as the next president and saw Trump as kind of a sideshow? Yes. And I actually think if you look at a lot of the problems we have coming out of 2016, it, you can you can point to many people who made that mistake. So we, Whoa, no, you're not alone in that at all. Yeah, so the media made that mistake. Yeah. Jim Comey made that mistake. Yes, I think that exactly, explains totally. his press conference. Yes. And um, uh, although, and I think the Obama administration made this mistake. I think if President Obama had thought that was a 50-50 campaign in terms of who was going to win, we can't know. But there is a good chance he would have chosen to be more forceful in public about describing Russia's interference. You know, I asked John Kerry about this because he was Secretary of State, privy to the discussion, privy to the intel uh, when he was on my show, uh, my CNN show and podcast uh, uh, the other day. And he said there was a real concern about the the idea that the president was putting his finger on the scale and, you know, that for the democracy, there was a real concern about that. So, you know, I put myself in their shoes and I understand that, you know, Barack Obama, as the guy I know well, had, you know, I could see him weighing this very heavily uh, and, uh, you know, they ended up, opt- they opted for the Intel chiefs to release a statement about what was going on. But, it, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, and the knowledge of what actually ha- was happening yes. now being so much more vivid than what was available, then you'd say, well, yeah, maybe, maybe more should have been done. Yeah, I mean, you, you put yourself in their shoes. They are thinking, wait a second, the, the downside of going public with this is I potentially undermine the credibility of Hillary Clinton's election, right? With Through the thumb right. on the scale that you're talking about. I, I think m- my guess is that um, there wasn't enough uh, kind of game planning of, well, wait a second, uh, w- what if Trump actually wins? Yeah, and- no, I just don't think people, and this is partly because, you know, we looked at, we look at the world, I think many of us, too often look at the world through this elite lens and uh, you know and there was an incredulity about the notion that Trump could become president but not in a lot of the country i mean there were the part of the country that voted for Trump uh, had the reverse uh, notion and uh, you know i think part of my critique of the coverage yep. is that there wasn't enough effort to really get into the middle of the country and the places where Trump was thriving uh, to understand why. Yeah, I think that's fair. And another another thing that it's caused me to reflect on is, obviously, I like numbers, as we've been talking about. Yes. And I know a lot of people feel angry. Well, the polls said that Hillary was going to win. And the thing that I've reflected on is, if you look at these um, sort of prediction models that now people follow quite yeah. closely, they said, a couple of the bad ones said that she had a 99% chance of winning, but the best ones were sort of between 10 and 20%, maybe 10 and 25%, and for Trump. And um, m- my old answer to that was, we just need to tell people that events with 10 and 25% likelihood yeah. happen all the time, right. right? You and I are baseball fans. 10% of plate appearances lead to an extra base hit. Right. If a batter comes up and hits a double, you don't say, hey, no one told me that was going to happen, right? right? Uh, but I actually think that's uh, that's a little bit wrong, which is all of us as human beings are almost incapable of looking at a number like 10% and putting it in the right context. We all kind of say, yeah. ah, that's not going to happen. And so I've tried to reflect on that. I don't have an answer. What is a better way to present this notion of one scenario is more likely to happen, but the other one really could happen? Yeah. I think that also explains some of the coverage problems. As you mentioned, you're you're now a, a, a columnist on the Times uh, op-ed page, and you, uh, you, you made quite a stir recently by... Uh, you know, t- taking the I word on, the impeachment word, and you made the case against Donald Trump. This was before, and we still don't know about the uh, authenticity of this BuzzFeed report, but the suggestion that he may have suborned uh, Michael Cohen's perjury before the House. Um, tell me what, you, what your thinking is now and what you expect 
to see in the coming months. So I think very briefly, it's just important stating the fact that he's violated his constitutional oath, he's broken the law, he's unfit to be president. And leaving him there presents enormous dangers to the country, right? If there is a foreign emergency, if there's a a storm like Katrina, I mean, we should not trust this person to manage the country. And I think he's doing active damage in a way that no president, Democrat or Republican in our lifetimes has ever done, right? And sort of let's, let's just, there's a lot of noise every day, but let's focus on that reality. And so I consider it akin to a national emergency. And to me, the most important thing is to think about Is there any way to have him removed from office? I don't think an impeachment by the Democrats right now helps that cause. I think it hurts the cause. I think it turns the attention on to the House Democrats who are impeaching him. But I do think it's really important um, that that both the Mueller investigation be allowed to continue, that its findings be made public, and that the Democrats in the House essentially continue to make the case using their subpoena power about why he's unfit. But what what. Absent impeachment, what is the other way of removing him besides a vote of the American people in 2020? And in some ways, a vote of the American people in 2020 is the best outcome because it's democratically legitimate. The problem is we're two years away from that happening. And are we really comfortable with him being president two more years? So I guess the thing I try to remind people is Nixon was never impeached. And and I know my counter to that is Nixon also didn't have Fox News, social media and uh, the country was a different, in a different place. Uh, That's you know, a fair counter. Forty-five years ago, or whatever. That's a fair counter. Um, uh, I guess what I don't think, I, I don't think there's any surefire way to make sure he's not the president anymore. But I do think he's more vulnerable than many people may realize. His approval rating is forty percent. He just got thumped in the midterms. So imagine you're Joni Ernst, the Republican senator from Iowa, or Cory Gardner, the Republican senator from Colorado. Or Susan Collins. Or Susan Collins. All of whom are up in 2020. Uh, and we could list more states, right? North Dakota, uh, uh, North Carolina. Tom um, Tillis. Exactly. Yeah. So there are a set of Senate Republicans who really need to worry about their jobs because of Trump's unpopularity. And um, I don't think we should take his approval rating of 40%. That's not a floor. That's where he is right now. And Nixon retained the support of the Republican Party very long into Watergate. And I think there is a point. He had, I think, a 50% or something approval rating among Republicans the day he He did. He did. You're right. Um, And not only that, but you kind of go back and George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan, they were all active in politics and they were defending him until pretty close to the end. Um, uh, And so... To me, it remains plausible that some combination of revelations, whether it's suborning perjury or something else, or the condition of the country will ultimately cause more Republicans to turn on him. And if that happens, I don't think it's out of the question that Senate Republicans will decide backing him is no longer in their interest. I'm not saying— It has to be. I mean, you know, the the founders set this up in a way as to require that that degree— of consensus in order to remove a president because there is the the democratic project relies on a sense of legitimacy of the people yes. and and if 40% of the people believe that this was a bloodless coup you know that's why i've you know i've i've thought uh, the optimal thing would be for there to be an election and have this thing decided i understand your point about the collateral damage uh, of of waiting but Boy, this has to be done. This has to be handled in a way that is transparent, that is uh, clear, yes. uh, that is justifiable if there is an, any sort of pressure on the president to leave or if he, if you know, we've never had a Senate convicted president before. I don't think we're going to this time either. But um, this is volatile stuff. It's volatile stuff. I don't think it's going to happen either. I just would... I don't think people should be foreclosing the possibility. The founders put the possibility of removal from office in the Constitution well, if for you see a their reason. Con- if you see their concerns, it, you you could find Donald Trump's picture in the— All over the place, right? Yeah. Corruption, foreign powers, all these things. And yeah. so, um, uh, look, if I got to choose, it would probably be he's voted out of office in 2020 without having done much more damage. But none of us can guarantee that he won't do much more damage as president. Yeah. Well, to be continued.
David Leonard, great to have you. Wonderful to read you. And uh, I look forward to many more conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.